Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Season two of the 22 Hours in American Nightmare podcast series is coming soon with a new story, a new mystery. He said, your mother was murdered. I, I physically couldn't hold the phone. I remember it falling out of my hands and dropping to the ground. The vicious murder of Sherry Crandall inside the Maryland hospital where she worked has mystified me, the police, and her family for the past two decades. I'm Washington, D.C. crime reporter Paul Wagner. Join me as I investigate this unsolved murder with an unforgettable twist. Ms. Crandall predicted that something violent may end up happening. Don't miss the new season of American Nightmare, the podcast series that was named the number two show of the year by the Associated Press and one of Apple Podcasts' most popular new shows of 2019. Listen to the official Season 2 trailer and subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Sam Vecini, my colleague at The Athletic, NBA draft, college basketball expert, and we spend most of this podcast talking about the top of the draft, really what he sees as the top tier and some of the other players that can work their way into that contention. Really fun conversation for those of you who might listen with kids around saltier than usual language in this one. So I wanted to give you fair warning for if that matters to you, just the way the conversation happened to go. Um, But I'm putting that out there. Really great conversation runs just about an hour. Hope you really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Danny, how you doing, man? It's good to good to hear from you. Good to good to chat about this NBA draft that has turned into a very strange uh, thing to deal with. It has. And I was able to watch a whopping half of the first G League Ignite game. So I have a slightly informed take on a few a few things, but it is, it is an interesting group when you think about the experience that these young men are having in their pre-NBA lives, and it's pretty pretty wild, especially when you think about like a lot of these guys. It was their senior year of high school, and then this year, wherever it is that they're occupying. And I think the place to start here is with the guy who at least began this season as... Mm, I would say the consensus number one, and that's Cade Cunningham. And so I've kept a little bit of tabs on him. I've watched more of Cade than anybody else, which is still not very much. Does he still have a firm grasp of the number one spot? For me, yes. But I would say that there is some level of some level of this being up in the air with a group of four players top right now. Uh, I would say Cade is certainly one of those players. And I think he is the favorite still to go number one overall. Uh, He has been the best player in college basketball uh, as a perimeter player. In my opinion, this year, the team he's playing with is just not very good. Uh, Just to be 100% honest, this team that he's playing with does not give him a chance to showcase a lot of what makes him as great as he is. Uh, Cade Cunningham is an unbelievable passer. We've seen that through his time at Montverde. We've seen it at different stops that he's had with USA basketball. He is an unbelievable passer. This Oklahoma state team does not give him an opportunity to showcase those skills. And yet he's still averaging 19 points a game because he is uh, as talented and as gifted and as big and physical and frankly long, like he's six foot eight with like a seven foot one wingspan. He's just like an enormous human being. Uh, 
while also shooting 42% from three. That was a significant question for Cade Cunningham coming in. Uh, how would he shoot? I had heard from Oklahoma State staff coming into the season that he drastically improved as a shooter. And that has proven itself to be the case. He is legitimately knocking down shots. There is very little that Cade Cunningham is incapable of doing. And I think that the college game throws throws that for a loop sometimes. And uh, the spacing of the college game kind of knocks off what makes him so great. And I think that we'll see that more often. So for me personally, Cade Cunningham is still the clear number one overall talent, but you talk to analytics executives in the NBA, you talk to um, some scouts that are a little bit more worried about his burst than I am. There are some scouts that will tell you Evan Mobley, Jalen Suggs, and Jonathan Kuminga are certainly in the mix to go number one. So I I don't think it's a sure thing that Cade Cunningham will be the number one overall pick. Something I wanted to ask you about with Cunningham's profile, you brought up the shooting from three, which is, yeah, which is absolutely a a surprise. He's 30 of 71 so far, so that's 42%. He's also shooting a pretty similar percentage, 44% on twos. I haven't watched enough of it to have context. Is that just him not getting stuff around the basket because of OK State's spacing? Is that some limitation? Because he's shooting well from the line. So I just wanted to see what the the context was there. Yeah, to me, it's spacing. It's all spacing uh, for them. They 32% from three. They, or no, I'm sorry. They shoot 33% from three and only take 32% of their field goal attempts from behind the three point line. Every time Cade Cunningham drives teams just absolutely load up to try and stop him. So I'm not particularly worried about his finishing. He might not be some crazy hyper elite finisher, uh, but yeah, I think he's going to be a okay. He knows how to use his length to extend and finish around the basket. Uh, as he gets fewer players around the rim in the NBA, because that's just a reality of the way NBA defenses work now, uh, especially with better floor spacers around him. Realistically, he plays a lot of minutes with Matthew Alexander Moncrief, who hasn't even attempted a three-pointer yet this season. Caleb Boone, who has not attempted a three-pointer yet this season. And Ice Likely, who has attempted 17 three-pointers in 18 games this season. He plays too many minutes with guys that are just absolutely, completely and utter non-shooters. So every time he drives, he's getting loaded up against three guys in a line, forming a fucking wall to quote Stan Van Gundy. Like it's, yeah, I'm not real concerned about the finishing. Okay, so that that's good. That makes me feel better about it, and that's why that context of somebody who knows the who knows college well is extremely useful for somebody like me who only you know periodically dabbles at this point in my career. Um, so with with Cade, I think the 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 big picture thing, and I think we'll do this with all of these top four guys, is we'll let's walk through the idea of kind of what you think their role w- would be like, maybe not like a best case scenario, but like a reasonable case scenario of what their role is. So for Cade, he would offensively, he'd have the ball in his hands a lot. Would he be, he'd be running a fair amount of pick and roll in your, in your mind? Yeah. I think he will be a, like essentially a lead guard, big initiator in and the vein of like a Luka Doncic type like, of okay, player. So, I don't, so, 
Yeah. Okay. I, I don't think he's quite as good as Luca, but I think that that's the role. Okay. So then that that's actually pretty that's pretty pretty straightforward. And then he's not the same type of player necessarily as Lamelo, but like we've seen guys at around you know the six 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 seven size work in that role. The big things yep. they need are they need to have a sufficient handle and they need to have either enough athleticism or some sort of physical advantage. Like with Luca, it's strength and being able to change speeds. And with other guys like LeBron, it can be quickness and strength. And with Ben Simmons, it's not enough of any of those things, which is why he's not as good at that. <laughs> um, Harden, I mean, we could go through all the things that he does. So for like, do you, do you think that Cunningham has the physical slash skill tools to get to that place? I do. Yeah. I mean, six foot eight uses his stride length really well to get into the basket, has really great uh, ability to play with pace, has a strong handle. I'm not going to say he's someone who like is going to break down defenders at a Kyrie Irving level clip or something like that, or even like a Chris Paul level clip. But he does decelerate really well. He can get in and out of crossovers at six foot eight. And when you're that big and that long, it's just really hard for guys to stay in front of you, especially when you also combine it with the strength that he has. I think it's just going to be really hard for guys to stay in front of him at the end of the day. In the limited amount of Oklahoma State I've watched, the thing that has impressed me the most about Cunningham is the give-a-shit index on defense. Because yep. going back for almost 10 years now, these clear-cut elite college basketball players on bad teams, and a lot of them on good teams, in, in fairness to all of them, have been bad defenders. And some of those guys ended up being good defensive pros. I mean, Simmons is the most obvious there, but also like Markel Fultz became a much better defender than he was at University of yep. Washington. There are various other examples over over the years. And Cunningham, he has good physical tools, as we just talked about for him offensively, but he tries, and I also like his recognition, and that ties in with something that you and I talked about going back to Ben Simmons, is players who are offensively aware and are physically talented generally figure it out on defense if they can, you know, because they have the, like, they have the right building blocks. But with Cunningham, the really positive thing is he's already trying, which is usually the factor that has to kick in. Yeah, no, Cade definitely has always been like a super high level defender, super high level give a shit defender too. Uh, he's just a very professional human being. The way he goes about things, the way that he attacks basketball in general, he does it, it with a very professional mindset. I'm not particularly worried uh, about Cade Cunningham dealing with really any of those you know factors at this stage. I think he's going to be great. Uh, throughout the course of his career at uh, really giving a shit defensively. Now, I don't think that he is going to end up as some all NBA defender while also being an all uh, NBA lead guard, right? It's just exceptionally hard to do that. I think the odds are against it. Uh, but I do think he'll be a high level defensive wing who is able to switch up and down the positional spectrum. What excites me about Cunningham in that respect is the idea, like I've talked about this before in terms of reciprocal versatility is the phrase that I've used before, which is if you have a great defender, if in order for that player to guard the other team's best X, whatever position that guy's in, most, a lot of guys can't do that, you know, two through four, or whatever, like going back to run our test the way our test did and some of the other, Kawhi can do that at times and a few others. What you need from the other guys is to be able to credibly defend other positions too, because if you're, let's put it this way, if your point guard can't guard twos, then it doesn't matter if you have another guy who's really good guarding ones because you can't use that. 
And so with Cunningham, sort of like what excited me about Luca and a few of these other guys, even if you don't want him guarding the lead guy, if he's guarding the other team's number two and he can care enough and do that, that's pretty good. Yeah, he's going to unlock a lot of very different lineups, essentially. He's going to be able to you're going to be able to put out someone like a Patrick Beverly with him who doesn't really have point guard skills, but is an elite level shooter and is an elite level defender. And you're going to be you're going to find it easier to get specific skills on the floor because Cade Cunningham brings so many of those skills to the table in one person already. I think that what we're seeing around the NBA is that skill level versatility within a singular player package is so incredibly valuable. It's why someone, for instance, like a Bam Adebayo this year with the leap that he's taken as like an occasional shot creator, even for Miami, not just for others, but even for himself. Like it's just so essential because if he's creating shots and also defending at a ridiculously high level, it opens up so many different lineups for Miami to be able to play. It opens up so many worlds where they can put on a Duncan Robinson and feel like they're okay defensively because Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler are covering so many different uh, parts of the court. With the Celtics, having two guys like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, they're essentially going to be able to play almost, you're going to be able to, you're going to have to have a center on the court or at least someone who can defend the basket at a reasonably high level with those two. But the other two guys on the court can basically be whatever guys you want out there. You could play Shimmy Ojale and Aaron Naismith if Naismith ever figures his shit out uh, as a shooter because Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown can handle lead guard responsibilities or at least lead initiation responsibilities. You may not want them as some sort of crazy passers, but they're both improving as passers nonetheless. Uh, Or you could go out and throw like Peyton Pritchard and Kemba Walker out there with those two. If you wanted to just go crazy with all sorts of shot creation, if the opposing team puts out multiple smaller guards. So I look at these guys like Cade Cunningham, like Bam Adebayo, like Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, um, these guys that are incredible two-way players can kind of bring every skill set to the table already. Their lineup unlockers, in addition to being superstar level shot creators as well. The other part of the Kate Cunningham equation that I was interested in, and then we'll probably move on, is him off ball. Do you think that Cunningham is a good enough shooter, cutter, you know, all those other things that you're not going to run into the Ben Simmons problem where if he doesn't have the ball, he makes the team a lot easier to stop? Yeah, I had some small concerns about that coming into the year, but as soon as I talked to their staff, they told me like from the jump, like he is either our best or second best shooter right now in camp. And he's shooting 42% from three 84 from the line. The shot mechanics look good. He's a crazy worker. Like I don't really have too many concerns right now on Cade's shot. I did at one point, but he has answered all of those questions at this stage to the point where even if he doesn't have the ball in his hands, he's going to be able to be a spot up shooting threat uh, without much, uh, without much concern, in my opinion. That's great. And that is incredibly important, not when thinking about Cunningham's ceiling, but about thinking about his fit with other teams and potentially right. raising his expected value in his floor. 
Right. That's exactly what my concern was with Killian Hayes, for instance, this year and why I had Tyrese Halliburton at, I think I had Halliburton at six or seven. I had Killian Hayes at nine or 10, uh, despite the fact that it seemed like the popular opinion was Killian Hayes is a better prospect than Halliburton. I had Halliburton higher because I figured the worst case scenario for Halliburton is that he's going to be a really good shooter off the catch who provides a ton of value as a really high level role player. And like that worst case scenario is like kind of out the window already because he is already showcasing that ability to shoot from a high shoot at a high level uh, to defend within a team concept. He does get taken advantage on the ball or taken advantage of on the ball a little bit more often than you'd like to see from a role player because he's not super strong yet, but his ball movement, his ability to play in pick and roll his ability to allow De'Aaron Fox to shift off the ball, his shooting off the ball, uh, all of those skills have immediately translated. So, uh, I think that people often underestimate downside value uh, with prospects. And I think that Cade is someone where I just don't really see much downside. Like I I would be, it would take like genuine altering injury for Cade Cunningham to not be an NBA starter, in my opinion. Let's jump to, well, I'll let you pick. So those three other guys, Suggs, Mobley, (laughs) Mobley, and Kaminga, where do you want to go next? Let's finish the college guys first, because I'm sure that you want to talk about the Ignite kind of. Yeah, we can do them together. So yeah, that's fine. So I go back and forth on whether or not I have Mobley or Suggs next. I I think it's very difficult because as we've talked about on the show a lot, the replacement value for a center in the NBA is just exceptionally high. Whereas for a lead guard, it's just not nearly as high, especially ones with size like Jalen Suggs, because uh, I don't know if you knew this, Danny, but Jalen Suggs was also Mr. Football in the state of Minnesota. Oh, that's fun. If you have. Oh, really? Did you not know that? I they did say not it know on that. literally. They say it on literally every single Gonzaga. I haven't, I haven't watched any of Gonzaga yet, which is why at some point I will ask you about Kispert as well. Okay, cool. So it's one of those things where I don't know if you remember when Kansas, uh, when Svi Mikhailuk was at Kansas, they would go, I don't know if you knew this, but he's a 16 year old freshman. And then when it was a se- when he was a senior, he was like, I don't know if you knew this, but he's a 19 year old senior in college basketball or a 20 year old senior in college basketball. It's become that like announcer crutch that they fall on whenever they don't have anything to talk about. So every college basketball fan is like just immensely frustrated by having to hear it every single time that Gonzaga plays. I digress though. Jalen sucks. Super athlete, really good in pick and roll, good vision, plays really well within their ball screen continuity offense. They play him next to another point guard regularly. I'm intrigued to see where the shooting comes in. He has knocked down shots so far. I am a little bit concerned about whether or not that's small sample or if it's like a real thing. He's shooting 72% from the line. If I remember correctly, he's been right between that like 65 and 70 mark throughout the course of his uh, AAU career. Mm-hmm. Was a bit more of a volume shooter over the course of his prep career. This year, he's gotten easier shots uh, as a three-point shooter because Gonzaga is just an absolute buzzsaw offensively. Like they are impossible to stop. They have so many different options that it's just crazy difficult to deal with them. 
So I want to see where the shooting comes in. Uh, I, I want to see I want to see him just like rep out a ton of jump shots at some point uh, before the draft cycle ends. I think his mechanics are pretty good. I just need to see a little bit bigger of a sample size before I go all in on him being a shooter. Mm-hmm. But it, it's it's just a very projectable combo guard potential star like can play the one in the two with ease while also being able to guard the one in the two positions. Uh, mm-hmm. Just a just a very high level versatile prospect at the uh, at the guard positions. What I've been wondering about with Celtics, I, I remembered I have watched a little bit against Gonzaga, but it was early non conference before the NBA season started, and. What I was thinking about with him is, okay, so let's say Suggs is on the ball more than he's off the ball. Do you defend him primarily with, with a one? Can he take physical advantage of that with his size? Do you defend him with a two? Like, it, I think it could work either way for, for Suggs and whatever team drafts him, but I, 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 he has the athleticism to make that work. But I was kind of trying to piece together, like, kind of, you, you said he can do both, and I agree with you, but, like, do you see him having a particular, like, kind of fit or advantage there? Yeah, I think he will be able to take advantage of ones if he's being guarded by a one. He is and like this is probably where having played football for all of his life, uh, he does have that real physical strength. Uh, If he gets a guy on his hip, like if he gets a guard on his hip, that guard doesn't really have a chance to recover in the way that he would like to. Uh, He also has like a really good first step to be able to blow by guys too. like he is a tremendous athlete. Uh, He gets to the basket with ease. He finishes at the rim with ease. And again, this is where like the difference between the situation of Gonzaga versus Oklahoma State comes into play. Gonzaga is the most talented offensive team I've seen play college basketball in a long time. Basically, all of the guys other than even like Timmy to an extent, like you at least can't leave him totally alone out there. But teams respect all of Kispert, Ayayi, and Nemhard even like a little bit from three. Plus, Kispert is just like a ridiculous shooter that has to be like accounted for basically at all times. Uh, he, he has space to finish at the basket every single time he goes in to drive. But also, he is a good finisher because he's explosive and has that first step and has that ability to extend and get his hand basically all the way to the rim and finish at the rim. Looking a little bit through Sugg's synergy stuff, it's interesting to me that he's been more effective so far on jumpers off the dribble than catch and shoot. And that might mm-hmm. tie in with the idea of just wanting to see a lot more reps. And those are both small sample sizes. I mean, it's, uh, it's I think, 38 attempts versus 22. So we're not we're not dealing with anything right. crazy. Like one, one make or miss swings that the other way. Um, and then, so the defensive versatility is also really interesting. I mean, talked about the strength and the athleticism and one, two versatility, I think is, is fascinating when you think about the league. Cause there's you and I have obsessed over the years with like three, four versatility and sometimes two, three, depending yeah. on the circumstance. One, two is fun because especially if Suggs is, is occupying a large role offensively, like just as a practical matter, I mean, Harden is the extreme here, but you could go with somebody like Steph Curry or whoever, whoever else you want. It's probably good to be able to have that guy not defend the other team's best player all the time, just depending on depending on what Suggs' role is. And so that versatility, if it holds, and I mean, 
two guards can be a lot of different things in the modern NBA, but if he can credibly yep. defend either spot, maybe that gets you into like, oh, you could have a Patrick Beverly or a Chris Dunn type who you wanted, or Matisse Thybul who you want at the tip of the spear. But also, if he can do it credibly, then if you have somebody who's bigger and you want Suggs to do it, cool. Yeah, no question. Like, playing him with Chris Paul would be interesting, right? Because, like, theoretically, you could have Paul take on, like, a tougher assignment if you need someone who can just be super strength, who can get up under guys. Or you can have Jalen Suggs take on uh, the tougher assignment if you want to be able to hide Paul away from the basket. I do think that early on, I would like to see him play with more of a positive defender in the backcourt uh, as opposed to like having him like be responsible for those things. Uh, he, he is, I don't want to say he's a bad defender. I think that would be unfair. He's definitely not a bad defender. He's probably closer to average though. Joel Ayayi takes most of their tough assignments this year. He's really kind of rebranded himself as a really, really good defender while also being able to rebound and be able to, uh, you know, shoot passing lanes and occasionally take some lead guard responsibilities on his own. Uh, so I think that he ends up kind of shielding Suggs from some of the tougher duties. But at the same token, I, I do think that Suggs is going to be able to deal with a lot of different matchups, uh, especially as he gets a little bit older, you know, into his early to mid 20s as opposed to being, uh, I believe he is still a teenager right now. Do you think his handle is good enough? Do I think his handle is good enough? I think it could stand to tighten. I think he does have enough creativity and versatility off the bounce. Uh, all of these guys you know like kuminga like jalen green uh you know cunningham does have like a pretty technically solid handle for someone who's six foot eight and he just has like physical advantages that these guys don't because he's so much bigger than them and so much longer than them but i think that he could stand to tighten it up i think that the creativity is there uh but to truly get like separation at the highest level uh, of the nba you know, all of these guys are going to have to tighten up the handle, but I, I think at some point it will be there for him to be enough of a creative force as a guard. Anything else on him, or do you want to move on to Mobley? Let's move on to Mobley because Mobley, it, it seems like he's the one that's like gaining steam within the online community regarding like, oh my God, this guy brings everything to the table that NBA teams are looking at. Like, I think I saw um, our friend John Charks write that he is the best big man prospect since Anthony Davis. And I'm a little bit more skeptical of him than that, but I think that nonetheless, it's an interesting conversation worth having. Yeah, so Mobley, I've, I saw him going back to uh, Team USA thing in Colorado Springs back in, I want to say that was October, November of yeah. 2019. God, Would have been that, 2019, that, yeah. That's how long ago all of this, that's how long ago we had a world. Um, and so what I was, what intrigued me about Mobley, I mean, his defensive tools are, are really exciting. I think that he, he has a lot of length. His feet are, are pretty good. Like his feet are better than, than, than like when I saw him, he was 17 and like his feet were already good and his instincts, like he cares about defense and all of that. Um, does he still look like a, I mean, I think I thought of him as like a theoretically capable switch defender, but probably better in more of the like the guy that I would compare him to defensively going like the last time I saw them is Miles Turner, who for those who remember, I loved Miles Turner defensively. I think of so like probably better not switching, but could switch if he had to. Is that kind of where that where the book is right now? Yeah, 
I wouldn't want him switching, uh, but I he has enough mobility to where if you told me in five years he's able to switch, I wouldn't be stunned. Like if, that's, but, if, that, if that was what the team like, this is what you have to do physically is be able to switch. Like kind of yeah. like, like, like Clint Capella, maybe sort of that's that idea where it's maybe not, yeah. what he's, not what he's best at, but something he can do. Yeah, I think even Clint has a bit more has a frame that is built a bit more towards switching because like one thing that let's talk about the positives with Mobley first before sure. we get to the negatives because I want to I want to bring up the positives I guess and I I would love to hear more about what you think the positives are. Okay, so his defensive instincts looked good. He he kind of had an idea I think of of Jaron Jackson as another guy who did this that his it was Michigan State, but like. He kind of mm-hmm. knew where he needed to be and was more often there than not. And there are a lot of players who at 17, 18, 19 do not do that. And his yeah. physical his physical tools are are very good. Like you could think about somebody like Wiseman. Like Wiseman, physically talented same age. I did not get to see Wiseman at the hoop summit like you did. Um I think of him as more somebody who was who overcame some of the recognition limitations. And I don't think that Mobley has those same limitations. Or at least at so- this point. Yeah, I would say he's kind of in the middle of Wiseman and Jaron Jackson. Uh, I had Jaron Jackson at four on my board. I was a big fan of Jaron. Mobley has similar concerns with Jaron and kind of a different offensive game. Like Evan is better as kind of a posty big who can face up and put the ball on the deck because he plays with really good bend and can actually like dribble three times in a row and get to the basket. Like you can give him the ball at the top of the key. He can ambidextrously drive with either his right or left hand, get to the basket and finish. Uh, That's a rare skill for a guy who's seven foot tall. I don't necessarily quite think he's going to be like a true play creator, so like but, short, maybe short roll type stuff. Like if the like, let's say he's playing with Trey Young and Trey Young gets doubled, maybe he can do something. I mean, like John Collins can do that. Yeah. yeah. So like, yeah, like John Collins can attack closeouts. Like you, you run a pick and roll with Trey Young, you pop. Uh, you know, John Collins catches, he pump fakes because people really respect the threat of his shot. And then on top of it, uh, Mobley or Collins in this scenario drives to the basket and finishes because both of those guys are actually pretty ambidextrous as uh, as drivers. So similar similar deal there. I do think Mobley is going to be able to catch short roll to pass, catch short roll to put the ball on the deck twice and finish. Um, how are his hands? I think you're good. I, I think you're going to be able to give him the ball, uh, you know, in the mid post, he's going to be able to face up. He's going to be able to drive past the guy baseline and try and finish. Like there, there are worlds where you're going to be able to late in the shot clock, give him the ball and say, Hey, try and create something for us. And it's not the worst option, but I don't know that he's ever going to be so good at it to where you're like, Hey, we, we need to, go away from running a high ball screen to do it. You know what I mean? Right, like, like the, the, like good the, at it, the but Joel like, I don't Embiid, know if he the, the Joel Embiid inflection point, like where like he had to get good enough at that. And he did Joel Embiid over the last couple of years where, oh, this is a actual viable way to run our offense. Right. A hundred percent. Like, I don't know if he's good enough to do that yet. There, There's a lot of similarity here. Like if, I don't quite remember what LaMarcus Aldridge was at Texas in terms of frame. Like part of me is remembering like 225 or so, like he wasn't quite as big as he is now. 
but like I think there's some of that that here. Like Lamarcus Aldridge, um, you know, could catch the ball face up, drive, catch the ball face up, shoot, uh, you know, catch the ball face up, pass a little bit, but that wasn't really Lamarcus's game. I don't really think that's going to be Evans' game necessarily. The thing that worries me with Mobley is how does his frame translate to the next level? These guys that we're kind of talking about that are very high level defenders, guys like Anthony Davis uh, has like a very well proportioned frame where he has like a, not like a low center of gravity, but like a normal center of gravity. Right. Um, you know, someone like a Bam Adebayo has like a normal center of gravity. With Mobley, he has extremely high hips, uh, very, very high hips to where I think that where you see that bear itself out as a concern is on the defensive glass, particularly. He, he gets pushed around pretty extensively on the defensive glass. Like he has an 18 defensive rebounding rate. That's like a good number for a wing. Yeah, not, that's, uh, that's like, like, yeah, that's that's concerning. Yeah, and he's good as like a rotational rim protector coming over uh, from the weak side. Really good instincts there. Only kind of okay as primary rim protector uh, who's like giving ground and then like using his length. He does have good length, like he's seven foot four. Most of his rebounds though come as uh, you know just outreaching guys. You know what I mean? You can't really do that at the next level against someone like Steven Adams or Brooke Lopez or Clint Capella, right? Like even Capella has like a semi-normal center of gravity. And the other place where that center of gravity worries me a little bit and look like this is all relative, right? Like I have Evan Mobley as like a very clear top, you know, four guy in this class. And honestly, like I think I probably would default to him at number two, he plays with really good bend, which I think gives him a chance to defend on the perimeter. But I also worry about these guys that do tend to have high hips because it takes them just like a little bit longer to take those steps typically. Mm -hmm. And I can see a world where these smaller guards like Chris Paul, Kyrie Irving can get kind of under him as he's trying to slide and like cut off the angle to these players. And you know, maybe I'm like overanalyzing it a little bit, but I, I just worry about him being switchable enough at that next level, given what the skill set is. Well, and then the other potential criticism of Mobley, and I don't know him specifically well enough to be sure of this, is going back. I love Miles Turner. I think you do too. Think about this year. Miles Turner, one of the most impactful defensive players. I just did awards with Nate Duncan and I had him number two for defensive player of the year. Lower. I would too. Lower usage center. He's still not one of the like top 15, top 20 players in the league. Like that is, and he is having a phenomenal season. He's blocking 10% of opponent twos, like all these other things. And also not the greatest defensive rebounder in the world. And so the, the challenge for a lower usage center or basically any center that isn't Carl Anthony Towns, Anthony Davis, which will be like anybody who's below that group is that the thresholds are ludicrously high. And so if you yep. can't reach that level, being the type of player that I, I like to use the haunting test. So it's like not drafting this guy is going to haunt you like yeah. that. It doesn't happen that often. And so this was a part of my argument against the Warriors drafting Wiseman, even though I had him two in my class, just in my draft class because of Lamelo. Or you could go through various others. It's especially true of centers that are actually worse than Mobley, but it's the same basic concept, which is 
it's hard to be a star that way. And here's another really important thing. The stars that do come that way, we almost always have a pretty good idea when they're this age. Like, I think, and look, like, I think there is a chance that he gets there. Like, his handle really is very good for someone who is seven foot tall like this. Uh, I think there, and like, he plays, like I said, with very real flexibility and bend uh, to where he can create shots for USC. It's just that that threshold for being a center shot creator and making that a better option is just ludicrously high. He's one of the few prospects that I think has a chance to get there. Like it's a credit to Evan Mobley. Like that. I think like, I think this about like zero centers. Uh, like I didn't even think about Jaron Jackson and I still have worries about Jaron Jackson as a shot creator. I think Jaron Jackson's value is that he's like maybe the best six eleven and taller shooter in NBA history from three. So like when I, when I say this about Mobley, like it's an immense credit to him that I think he has a chance to do this, but like the threshold for being able to create shots efficiently at the center position is just incredibly high. And frankly, like, Going back from the time that he is, uh, you know, 16 years old, even until now, there are like signs that he just doesn't have that like kind of like fuck you mentality that you need to be a shot creator at the center position, right? Like he took six shots against UCLA. Uh, what was that? It was probably four days ago since we've been recording. Uh, he took zero shots in a game this year playing 30 minutes against Utah. Uh, He took eight shots against Oregon state and he took seven shots against Arizona state. And like they won some of these games too. And like, I don't mean to like preach on it and like harp on it, but I don't know that we've seen that. Like, Oh my God, this guy is going to just like dominate games kind of shit that I don't know. Like, I kind of feel like I would like to see if I'm going to take a center at number two overall, just given the replacement value of centers league wide. Yeah. I I think that's a very fair criticism. I'm excited to watch Mobley to see if he can, if he can hit that mark. Okay, it's G League Ignite time, and originally, like when the when the team was put together a lifetime ago, the player who generated the most <laughs> excitement was Jalen Green. Jalen Green is still yeah. probably going to be a very high pick, but it seems like he has been usurped, and that ended up being true in their first game, at least, um, by Jonathan Kaminga. And I'll start a little bit. So I only watched a half. I'm not, and that's the first time I've ever watched either Kaminga or Green. Um, what was really interesting in the first little stretch, because I'm always skeptical, but this goes back to me being wrong on Kevin Durant. I'm always skeptical of these like forward size guys who think they can do everything. Like it's just like, especially as NBA prospects, <laughs> it's just like, you can't like, you, you know, like most of those guys can't. And then what happened was at the beginning of the second quarter, Kaminga had two passes from recognition and execution. We're just like, oh crap. Like he actually can do a lot more yeah. of this than I thought he could. And I don't know exactly, like, you know, still too early in film watch, you know, like, let's say 10 minutes of action to know exactly what he is. But there are not many guys who have that kind of set of physical tools that can even make one of those passes, much less two in five minutes. Yeah, he threw three, like, really nice, like, tight window passes uh, in that game against the Santa Cruz Warriors that really, like, kind of stood out to me. I I was very impressed. Like, and that was something that is an improvement for him. Like that, that, that was not his game typically coming out of, uh, where, where he's from New York. I know that, but, um, 
wherever he was. Uh, like he is someone that could really score, played exceptionally hard, had a chance to shoot it, but like had a bit of a robotic mechanical jumper in a way that was like somewhat concerning. Uh, he's not that anymore. Like he is kind of turning into the archetypical like wing creator that every single team in the NBA is looking for, uh, can play on the ball, can play off the ball. The thing that impressed me most in that game, kind of given what I just said about the shot, it used to be like very robotic and mechanical. I didn't really see a world where he was going to be like a movement shooter or he was going to be a, um, like a terrific pull-up shooter. He took like five jumpers coming directly off of movement with confidence and the mechanics were pretty steady and looked good and looked fluid. I know he went one for seven from three, but like if we're talking process over the results, which we should be in my opinion, yes, I was I was immensely impressed with his uh, with his mechanical leap in terms of his shot uh, that he's made over the course of the last little while. And this wasn't just yesterday either. I mean, if, if you listen to the Game Theory podcast, which is mine, um, I've been saying with Matt Penny for the last few months, realistically, that all of the intel we've gotten out of Walnut Creek uh, since those guys have gotten there was that Kamingo was the guy that he's the like best prospect of these guys. I, I've had Kamingo four for a little while now. Um, nothing I saw yesterday changes that, in my opinion. He he is he is what we think he is, and he is uh, a very real uh, player within that top tier of draft prospects, in my opinion, including the three guys we just talked about uh, a minute ago. Two other things about Kaminga that I thought were really interesting. One, I don't think his handle is good enough to be like the lead guy on, you know, like the, you know, like that's something I think we underappreciate about Kem Durant. And his handle isn't perfect, but Kem Durant is a freak at everything. Um, but it had, there were some flashes of like he was kind of caught in the corner and weaseled his way out of it and got close to the basket. It's like, okay, got a little bit more craft there than I thought. And also Kaminga, to me, it looked like he had the physical tools to be a, a good to very good defender. Maybe not a great one, but versatile enough, just like we talked about with Cade, to work within a scheme. Yep. And so if he's out... If yeah, he no, being, I agree with that. Yeah. So if he ends up being a higher usage guy... That's all you need from defensively. It doesn't need to be, you know, that guy. I think he has like some chance to go beyond that as well, to be honest. Uh, he made a rotation late in that. Did you watch the first half or the second half? First half. I have the second half queued up. I'm probably going to watch it tomorrow morning. He made a rotation like late in that game to block a shot where I was like, oh, this is a like high level like rotation. This is this is not something that is normal for teenagers to do and not something that is normal for um for guys playing their first professional basketball game that made me think like, Hey, this guy is going to make pretty good decisions as a defensive player. And plus, like I said, like he's always had a reputation for working hard. You go back, you watch AAU games, like he works hard out on the court. I kind of like, I kind of think he really, really has a chance to be just an exceptional basketball player. Like just an absolutely, uh, absolutely awesome basketball player. Uh, that fits so many different directions that the NBA is going like across multiple across multiple places. Well, and what I think is really notable about Kaminga is you think about 
the the rarity of forward sized guys high in the lottery. So last year, like I know I heard somebody make a comparison, like, oh, he's better than Patrick Williams. And it's like, yeah, he probably, I'm guessing. Hey, he, yeah, I, I wrote that. Oh, you did. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, he probably yeah. will be better than Patrick Williams. But remember like, okay. From so a then, scout. <laughs> yeah. So then in 19, RJ Barrett and DeAndre Hunter were really the only wings that went in the top of that draft. And then Culver a little bit later. Okay. That's not very many. And then the year before, Luca was the only real wing taken in the top five. But actually, you could argue he was the only wing taken in the top eight because then 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 uh, Knox went nine. And then the, the, the next year, depending on how we're considering Lonzo, but if we're going forward size guys, Tatum, Josh Jackson, who's on the small side there, maybe John Isaac, he's kind of more of a big now. So it's like there aren't many of these guys. And that doesn't mean yeah. Kaminga is obviously going to succeed, but you and I have since since you became a guest on Real Jam Radio, and since you and I became friends, like we've talked a lot about the scarcity of wings that have high end potential. And so, like, I mean, that's part of what's so exciting about Cade Cunningham. It's part of what's exciting. Suggs isn't quite that guy; he's a little bit smaller. But like yeah. that, the theory of Kaminga is these guys don't grow on trees. If there's even a faint chance that he's that guy and you get him for eight years. I mean, that's, that's insane. I think like, so I, I, next week I have my like NBA prospects project starting. Uh, I go through, I rank every prospect on every team and I rank the organizations, uh, based off of their NBA prospects. So guys on rookie scale deals, guys on, um, second round picks that are on their first deals, etc. Right. I think people are going to be pretty, and then and after that, I do a top 50 prospects in the NBA ranking as well. I think people are going to be like pretty surprised with where guys like DeAndre Hunter, OG Ananobi, Mikhail Bridges, RJ Barrett, even like despite his uh, pre-draft reputation, like his has haters in the NBA. Maybe let's say guys who were just not fans of his. Uh it's just really hard to find these guys. Like it's really, really hard to find wings that are this good and guys who can defend multiple positions and guys that can create their own shot. If got if you have a player who has any semblance of a chance to be six foot six, defend multiple positions and create his own shot, you basically have the equivalent of gold in today's NBA. Um, th- those guys are very, very high on my yeah. list. And I, I think people will, uh, people will be a bit surprised to see where some of those guys are ranked because it, it's just really hard to find them. And that is the thing Danny Ainge got most correct was rolling the, rolling yeah, the dice is. on those guys twice and hitting yep. both times. It's and and not, on. not every one of those guys has hit. I mean, the guy taken right after Jason Tatum didn't quite hit. Um, but it's <laughs> for, for, uh, Maybe not purely for basketball reasons on that one. <laughs> True, but I mean, yeah, you you and I disagreed on Josh Jackson for basketball reasons too. But um, but yeah, so with Kaminga, that's there. The yeah. guy well, that I'm but like the a good example that's Jarrett Culver though. Like yeah. Jarrett Culver, there's nothing, there's no, nothing off the court with Jarrett Culver. Yeah, uh, and it looks like that's just like a pure miss. Yes, yeah. well, we'll see. Hopefully, he can um, be better. But so I want to ask you about Jalen Green because the player that I saw in that game, without a lot of context, though I've since read some stuff that you did, and of course, of course, other people too, mm-hmm. is so when I watched him, I thought, okay, smooth athlete, 
you know, his shot actually, it's, it looks like it's come, like it's coming along, not like uh, he doesn't look like an insane shooter, but I, th- I could see him being a capable one. Like some of his movement stuff, seems like he has reasonable defensive tools. But so my, my question, and when I saw you writing about this, I was interested, is he didn't, when I watched him, especially was like going against Nico Mannion, who is not exactly the high-level NBA athlete that you think about with this, is <laughs> I didn't see Jalen, when I watched Jalen Green, I didn't think primary ball handler starting in the NBA. I thought NBA player, yeah, no, obviously, I, but I didn't think that. And there are lots of really good players who don't do that. But is that is the theory of Jalen yeah. Green that he can run an offense? That's the people who really like Jalen Green. Yes, that is the theory. Okay, uh, I've never been quite as high. Like I, I have him at number five. Like don't get me wrong. Like I, I like Jalen Green and think he's like definitely a lottery pick. I've always been a little bit more skeptical about his ball skills, his efficiency of decision-making and his shooting ability. Um, Great athlete guy who can really get in the open court and like make things happen. I also thought that yesterday as he settled into the game a little bit more, like I think early on he was just kind of a mess and was pressing and was uh, trying to do a little bit too much and like just not really playing his game because it was his first pro game and like jitters, whatever you want to chalk it up to. I'm not going to like write a guy off based off of one game when we've seen him for four years now be a super high level player. Um, having said that, like I have always seen him as more of like a Zach Levine type where probably a little bit better off the ball and then occasionally sliding over onto the ball to try and create shots. And like Zach Levine has taken a leap beyond what I think could have reasonably been anticipated of Zach Levine because Zach Levine is like underrated. One of the craziest, like high level workers in the NBA, like period point blank. Uh, You ask any trainer, anyone around the league who's been around like Zach Levine comes up in terms of like guys who are among the best, hardest workers in the NBA. Um, it, it took it took a guy like that this long to with like crazy really physical come good. tools himself too. Yeah, with crazy physical tools. I mean, I, I think that Jalen Green is a bit more of a project than what other people think, and that's okay. Like, if I was a team in the lottery, I would be ecstatic to end up with Jalen Green because the athletic tools are just so vast. But like. He's like six four, six five, not six foot seven, six foot eight, like a big, you know, wing creator and initiator, right? It, it's just like a little bit harder for those guys, I think, than what a lot of people tend to be willing to say. You know what I mean? I, I do. And it's interesting you brought up Levine. I am not comparing these two gentlemen as players, but the example that I was thinking of in terms of Jalen Green, and we got to this a little bit with Mobley as well, is Bradley Beal. And so here's what I'm saying yeah. about Bradley Beal. Bradley Beal is a, like, I was lower on him as a prospect than most people. And a part of it was, I didn't think he was going to be able to run an offense. And the idea was, if he can't do that, and he's that size, you have to be so good at everything else in order to reach the level of overall impact. Now, Bradley Beal has largely done that, though, you know, he he isn't, uh, you know, his volume of scoring right now is, this year, he's leading the league in scoring. His volume is more prominent than his efficiency, but also, like, you could think about the limitations of this Wizards team and a bunch of other stuff, not getting into all that right now. But that's what concerns me a little bit about Green, just in that limited amount that I saw, is 
two guard who's a secondary creator who can do a lot of things well but isn't truly jaw-dropping at anything very easy for them to be a good player in the league very easy for them to be a 10-year pro a 10-year starter even but for them to be an all nba player is difficult it's possible but it's difficult yeah the standard is really high and like honestly like another guy like that is the guy who went number one last year anthony edwards and it's why i had edwards at number three was because yeah, Anthony Edwards has physical tools even beyond what Jalen Green has in the way that well, they translate the to the yeah. basketball court because of his strength. And Edwards doesn't always use them, whereas I think Jalen is more inclined to use them. But man, like it, it's just hard. It's really hard for these guys and they might come through, but you might be waiting for four or five years for it to come through because it, it just takes skill development that long at the end of the day for these guys because – to be like an NBA initiator, you have to be so fucking good at basketball. Like you have to be so incredibly good to be efficient at all the things you have to be efficient at uh, in the NBA in terms of decision making, in terms of making reads, everything like. Well, in terms of handle and speed and having, you know, usually having one other thing. And like, I, I think that there could be brighter days ahead for him. I, You and I have had disagreements on D'Angelo Russell a lot, but you think about Russell coming into the league and then the challenges that he's had, like not. You know, I, he had some really encouraging stuff at Ohio State, had obviously at other parts in his career, made an all-star team, but still hard to reach that level where you're consistently creating good shots for yourself and other people. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, so, yeah, like I have Jalen Green at five. Uh, his performance yesterday was not great. He seemed to still not really know what the... Uh, I guess that he was pressing and like first game jitters and everything, but like the decision making in terms of shot selection, in terms of uh, making high level passing reads to his teammates, everything, it, it just was not quite at the level that you need to be to have an impact on the NBA floor yet. But I think he's also going to be someone that is he adjusts to the speed of the game as he adjusts to uh, everything. I think he's going to be a lot better uh, yeah, over yeah. the course of the second half of the G League bubble as opposed, as opposed to like this early portion of the G League bubble. Yeah, and I don't want our concerns here to be construed by listeners as like confidence that he's not going to work or anything. It's just that the path is narrow. A path being narrow does right. not mean it's impossible. It just means it's narrow. And I mean, that's it's kind of similar with Mobley and a lot of the other things. I just wanted to underline and bold and italicize that exact point because that's it, it's it's so pivotal, especially with a guy who's as young as Jalen Green and who's as phys- Green is, who's as physically talented as he is. And at a certain point, you do end up relying on some of those prior precedents because that's what we have to work from. And, you know, like whether that's the Mobley stuff, that guys like him very rarely reach that echelons, and there are exceptions to every rule. But it is it is useful because, you know, you're you're making a value proposition and hopefully a team only has so many bets, you know, you're not going to be a lottery veteran because if you're a lottery veteran, you're not going to have your job for very long as a general manager. And so the, those decisions are exceedingly important. I know time's getting a little bit short. So what I was thinking of is you can pick a couple of players, as many, four or five, if you want. And what I'm interested in is like a couple sentence summary of like what it is, if it works. So like first guy I thought of was Zaire Williams at Stanford. Like if it works, what is it? Oh man. Uh, skinny, somewhat creative on ball threat who can also be like a jump shot maker, uh, you know, starting level NBA wing. 
and he's, but needs, is he small, needs to put on more, weight to more of that. a two or more of a three in your, in your eyes right now, probably more of a two, because honestly, I don't think that he can even handle the like physicality of playing like the three right now, uh, playing like that high up the lineup. Like he is, he is 175 pounds and very skinny. How about Scotty Barnes? If it works, kind of like a small ball four who can hit the occasional catch and shoot jumper and be like a super high level switchable rim protecting uh, while also like weak side rim protecting while also defending one five player. Uh, and, and he also particularly I, who who particularly excels on like short rolls and passing uh, sets. That's what I was going to say. That's I, I've seen a little bit of Barnes and that's what was so interesting to me is the idea of maybe not a secondary playmaker, but somebody who when put in an advantage situation can do something with it. like Scotty Barnes. Like one of the interesting theories of him is maybe like what we all wanted Aaron Gordon to be. I mean, not maybe not the same level of athlete, yes. but in terms of like role and success, like I think Barnes has better tools as a help defender. Gordon ended up kind of becoming in some ways more of a three defensively than a four. And that that kind of opportunistic forward is an interesting role. No, I think that's absolutely like dead on, basically. Uh, it, look, I, and I have real questions about Scotty Barnes's jump shooting. Like, But if it works, a critical part of Scotty Barnes is going to be the ability to occasionally knock down a catch and shoot shot. Um, I'm skeptical of that happening. I'll, I'll let you pick a couple. Ah, no, I'll pick one more, and then you can pick any, any if you want. But the other one for me, I remember hearing about him going into his freshman year is Jalen Johnson. <laughs> um, less athletic Ben Simmons. Interesting. Works, which, like, doesn't really work, in my opinion. But, Oof. Like, well, because he's smaller, uh, too, I'm, right? Uh, he's, pro- well, he's smaller, yeah. Like because, Ben's, like, like 6'11 underrated, now. Underrated, yeah, like, everybody's smaller than Ben Simmons. Right, Um definitely smaller like 68 with like a 611 7 foot wingspan something like that uh really would need to shoot it right now i don't have much faith in the jump shot um if he learns to shoot things become more interesting i'll let you pick is there anybody else in this class kind of around this level that really interests you that you think you want to do like a couple sentence sales pitch yeah like i love Corey kispert in this class i know you wanted to talk about him earlier uh kispert's a guy that uh, if it works, it's very similar to what Joe Harris brings to the table uh, with the Nets. Like I, I think or that Duncan Robinson. there's actually yeah, um, more Harris because he's stronger and thicker, whereas Duncan's like a bit skinnier and has like less of a chance to defend consistently. Interesting. Uh, I, I think I think that Kispert has a better chance to defend than um, than Duncan does. And then was Keon Johnson the guy who had that crazy dunk that you probably put in my <laughs> in my timeline yesterday? Yes, that- Keon Johnson is unbelievable. I am a huge fan of uh, his athleticism. Working through some things offensively in terms of handle and in terms of jump shot uh, has a chance to be a shot creator uh, just because he has that ability to separate. Like has a great first step, has real leaping ability, uh, great frame. But needs to work on the shot and needs to work on his handle. Um, there's so, there's someone else. Oh, I really like Kai Jones as well at Texas. Six um, eleven can really handle the ball. Can like pull up and shoot occasionally, which is like wild. Um, very very much so. Still learning how to play basketball at this level. Like he was a uh, I believe a long jumper in the Bahamas, That's and awesome. then started 
and then like started playing basketball when he was 16 competitively. I mean, like played basketball, but like, you know, started to like really focus on basketball when he was like 16, I believe. Um, really interesting player, really, really interesting, uh, incredible athleticism in terms of the way that he functionally uses his athleticism on the court, uh, potential to be a switch E defender, um, potential to be a rim protector, although hasn't really, uh, done that a ton this year because he plays more of the four for Texas at times, but just kind of a, kind of one of those guys that you don't get to see the full, view of the skill set, I think, because of what his role is on Texas. But when you see the flashes of like what he has potential to bring to the table, you're like, oh shit, like this guy might actually be a difference maker at some point. That's really interesting. Um I have one more just because I, I've read a couple things about him and I'm I'm trying to figure it out. Usman Garuba of Real Madrid seems really yeah. fascinating. You know, I was I was really fascinated last year. Uh, I thought he had a shot to be like a top half of the lottery pick. I honestly think he's like a second round stash now. Interesting. Like great, great, great defensive instincts has real potential to be like a switchy defender, uh, has real potential to be a um, like one of those guys you can play at center. He can switch one through five across the board as well as like most centers can, um, maybe not like to a bam at a bio extent, but like to a reasonable extent. Um, I just don't think he has any offensive game. Like d- doesn't like he's tried to like showcase some handle this year, but he just like doesn't have it can make some high level passing reads at times, but like not all the time. And like, there are some real ugly ones as well. Yeah. Like, I get it. I think he has a shot to be like a good um, backup center at some point. And he might go in the first round at the end of the day, just because, you know, who else are you going to take? Uh, you have to fill 30 of these spots. And this year it's tough to do that. But I don't, I, I'm real worried about the offensive game. I will say that I'm really worried about the offensive game. Fair enough. Well, hopefully, and I'm expecting that we will have the time to talk about more guys in the future, but thank you so much for taking time. That was a blast as always. Of course, Danny, anytime. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at The Athletic. You can also listen to the Game Theory podcast that he does, and you can check out periodically he, Seth Partnow, and I do collaborative pieces when something big happens at The Athletic. We did one on the Harden trade. We did one on the Derrick Rose trade as well. And those are a lot of fun. So if you subscribe, you should definitely check those out. And of course, check out the Game Theory podcast. And if you don't already, somehow follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love having him on. You can also check out my other work. Dunked On is still going strong five times a week. The Sunday night slash Monday episode is still public and free. And then we are ad free for that one. And then subscription for the other four days a week that is called Dunked On Prime. There's also total access. You can check that out. My writing at The Athletic. I just did some fun collaborative work, including with Kelsey Russo of the Cavs, and then did an in-depth piece on the Nets, kind of as the the ramifications of of the Harden trade and a lot of other really fun stuff. So you can check that out. And I'm working on a bunch of solo stuff as well. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode, really whatever podcast player you use, Spotify, Apple, whatever. Really do appreciate that. And also leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player we're choosing. That is a way for people to find the show. Much appreciated. Word of mouth 
similar thing. Hey, tell people online, wherever you like this episode, you'd like this podcast. That's a great way for people to find it. Yes, the show has been around forever, but there are people who don't know about it. So that's very useful and much appreciated. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. Twitter is too ephemeral. If you take the time to, to write an email, I will read it and I will respond if I can, um, but I will read it. That I, I respect your time too much to do anything other than that. As always, Real Jam Radio will be back next week. I do not know the specific timing. It will depend on guest availability and everything else. But there's a lot going on, so there's a lot, a lot of potential ground to cover, especially in this run before the All-Star break, and then the trade deadline is going to be on us before you can even really blink because of the, the week off. So lots to, lots to do between now and then, and then, of course, a lot to do then. So thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day. 